0: Well, good morning, Nansman River. My name is Jeff. Everybody say hi, Jeff. I am so glad to be here, and I'm so glad to be among friends. I think the world of your team here, uh, Brian and Jadrian, I've gotten to know pretty well over the last uh, few years, and Ryan, he's okay, right? I mean, we'll we'll keep him. Uh, but I, I am so excited about what God is doing uh, through you. A year ago, this February, I was able to go to Rwanda and work alongside the church plant that you guys have been so instrumental in planting and encouraging and funding fostering and supporting uh, and celebrating with along the way. And so I'm excited to see what God is doing through you, and I am absolutely honored to be here with you this morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, uh, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. We'll look at verses 4 through 16 of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes 4. Verses 4 through 16. Pastor Matt Francisco uh, makes the, the contention that there is no better book in the Bible for anxious modern Americans than the book of Ecclesiastes. It, Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, had accomplished everything that so many of us are trying so hard to accomplish. He had arrived where so many of us are striving so hard to arrive. And he writes the book of Ecclesiastes in many ways to to, to say, hey, at, at at the top of this mountain, you're trying so hard to climb. At the end of this rainbow, you're striving so hard to reach. Let me let you in on a little secret. There is no pot of gold. There's no pot of gold at the end of this rainbow, as Hopps and Buteau said here just a few weeks ago. Satisfaction in this life cannot be found in this life. Satisfaction in this life cannot be found in this life. C.S. Lewis said something very similar. He said, if I find myself dissatisfied with this world, I must consider the possibility that I was made for another world altogether. That's what Solomon is helping us to understand in the book of Ecclesiastes. And in chapter 4, he drives that principle home to our relationships. He drives the principle that satisfaction in this life cannot be found in this life, drives that principle home to our relationships. Relationships. You've, You've probably had some good ones. And if you live long enough, you'll probably have some not so good ones, right? That's how relationships work. We sometimes uh, think too much of them. We put too much weight on them. We put too little energy into them and then we wonder why they didn't work. Relationships, as one book says, are a mess worth making. I don't know if you're aware of this, but God has put you in a world with other people, right? Some of us, that's a big light bulb moment. We didn't realize there are other important people in the world. Yep, there are other important people in the world. You're not the only one. And God has called you, commanded you even, to relate well to these other people. He intends to use you to reach them. He intends to use them to reach you. God has put you in a world with other people and he's commanded us to relate well. So that's what we're going to talk about in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 is relating well, relating well. From your classmates to your co-workers, from your family to your friends, we are called to relate well. And in Ecclesiastes 4, Solomon warns us against three pitfalls that we all fall into in our relationships. The pitfall of envy, the pitfall of isolation, and the pitfall of pride. So we're going to look at those three pitfalls. We're going to understand what does it mean to forsake the pitfalls and to pursue the wisdom, to forsake the wind, as Solomon uses the phrase, and to pursue wisdom. It's almost as though Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, two roads diverged in a life, to borrow a phrase from Robert Frost. And one is the way of the wind, and one is the way of wisdom. And then Solomon looks at you, and Solomon looks at me and says, which, which road are you going to take? Which road are you going to take? Are you going to take the road of the wind that leads to frustration or are you going to take the road of wisdom that leads to faithfulness? That's what he's getting after in Ecclesiastes 4. So let's turn our attention to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 4 through 16 again of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Now, before we go to our text, I want to pray for us, and I'm going to tell you what I'm going to pray. First of all, I'm going to thank God for the gospel. That's something I've started doing over the years. I'm just gonna start my prayer by thanking God for the gospel because I find maybe you're, maybe you're a little like me and you are, I've met some of you. You, you. Maybe you're prone to forget the gospel. I am so prone to forget the gospel. So I'm gonna start just by thanking God for the gospel and then I'm gonna ask that God would help us apply the gospel to our relationships. So let's pray together and we'll turn our attention to Ecclesiastes chapter four. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. The good news that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and on the third day rose again in accordance with the scriptures. God, we thank you for using people to get this good news to us. We pray that you might use us to get this good news to others. God, we, we thank you for the faithful ministry you've had uh, through Nansman River. From years, decades ago, in the little house down the street, to the old sanctuary down the hall, to this moment and what you're doing right now, right here at Nansman River. So God, would you help us to open up your word? Would you help us to understand it? Would you help us to hear from it? And would you help us to see Christ crucified, buried, raised to life and exalted? And God, would that, the gospel, would that be the banner that, that, that waves over all of our relationships? From our relationships to our family, ...to our friends, from our neighbors, to the nations. God, we trust you in things great and small. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. All right, let's turn our attention to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 4 through 16... ...and then we're going to draw out three principles from our text. So Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work... ...come from a man's envy of his neighbor... This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool holds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So three principles, three choices that we have to make in order to relate well. We're going to see that these are made, uh, they're they're, uh, formed in the fashion of we've got to forsake the wind and pursue the wisdom. Forsake the wind and pursue the wisdom. So here's number one. Forsake the wind of envy and pursue the wisdom of contentment. Forsake the wind of envy and pursue the wisdom of contentment. Look at verse 4. Then I saw, Solomon writes, that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. So Solomon surveys the workforce. He looks out over the entirety of his kingdom and he looks at people working hard and people hardly working and he asks the question, what makes us work so hard? What makes us work so hard? And Solomon's answer is envy. Envy makes us work so hard. Now, we need to understand that the book of Ecclesiastes is best read hand in hand with the book of Proverbs. So you might read that and, and think, okay, Solomon, does that mean that everybody, everywhere, all the time, anytime they're doing any kind of work, they are always and only driven by envy? To which Solomon would say, no, no, but envy is real. Envy is thorough. Envy is thick, and we need to be aware of envy in our own so Solomon surveys the workforce and he says what makes us work so hard what makes the young musician practice hours after hours after hours so that they can hit the perfect note what makes the multi-millionaire CEO with the corner office forsake another family gathering for a little bit more time at work what makes the young athlete show up early or the old athlete for that matter I'm thinking of LeBron last night Right? What makes the, the, the athlete show up early and stay late? It's envy. Solomon says it's envy. And he explains that this is indeed a striving after the wind. It's vanity and striving after the wind. Now, Dr. Aiken, a couple of weeks ago, when he started this series through Ecclesiastes, he made the point that striving after the wind is like a man running around with a net, a butterfly net, uh, on the beach, And you ask him, are you trying to catch butterflies? And he says, no, I'm trying to catch the wind. Now we quickly know how silly and how foolish such an attempt would be, right? Striving after the wind is to waste our time. It's to waste our energy. It's to pursue that which cannot be attained. Now, what does that look like in our relationships? What does it look like to strive after the wind in our relationships? Well, one thing it means is it means to put undue burden on that relationship. It means to expect out of that relationship that which that relationship was never intended to give you in the first place, right? Similarly, to me saying to my wife or one of my two boys, okay, you better make me matter, right? Give me meaning, give me significance, tell me I'm important and don't you ever let me down. They're not meant to bear that burden, Right? What have I done? I've deified them. I've put them on the level of God. We do this all the time in our relationships. We say, tell me that I matter. Tell me that I'm important. Tell me that I'm significant. And don't you dare ever let me down. We deify relationships, and then when they don't satisfy us, we demonize them. We think, how could you? How could you let me down? How how could you not satisfy me? How could you not think that I'm the most important person in the world? Right. This is what we do. Solomon says this is striving after the wind. And he says, at the root of this is envy. You might think of envy this way. Envy is like a seed. It will bear fruit. It will bear fruit. And the fruit of envy might look like hard work. It might look like a sense of diligence or an inner sense of drive and grit and determination but understand that envy is a bad seed and it will always produce rotten fruit. Envy is a bad seed and it will always produce rotten fruit. You might think about it this way. Envy is like a broken compass, right? You understand that a broken compass will guide you, right? You can totally follow a broken compass. It'll just never get you where you want to go, right? Envy is like a broken compass. It'll guide you, It'll just never get you where you want to go. I remember years ago when my wife and I were students at at CNU, best-looking alumni on the planet, in my humble but accurate opinion... All right, Christopher Newport University. And we were going on a retreat with a a group of other students with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We were leaving Newport News. We were driving to the western part of the state. And so we packed up all our stuff. I'm driving. I'm about three or four cars back in the caravan. We had to make a pit stop in Charlottesville to pick up uh, uh, one of our, our fellow students. And so I remember we're driving out 64 We uh, take the exit into Charlottesville, we take a right turn, a left turn, we stop at this gas station to pick up Mary, our friend. Mary shoves her uh, sleeping bag into the back of an already absolutely packed blue Chevy Blazer. That was the car that I was following. All right. She packs her sleeping bag and her backpack in there. She hops in and we're off again, headed, our, making our way back to the interstate. We make a right turn, a left turn. Now, eventually somewhere I got I got a few cars between me and the blue Chevy Blazer I was following. Right. It happens all the times, time in caravans. You've been there. You know what I'm talking about. So here we are in Charlottesville and we make a right turn, a left turn. We're supposed to be going back to the interstate when at some point I think, you know, I don't remember coming this way. And at some point we got to, it's okay, again, I got a couple cars behind, but I caught up to a blue Chevy Blazer. At some point, I'm at a stoplight somewhere in downtown Charlottesville, and I said, you know, that blue Chevy Blazer doesn't have the same stickers as the blue Chevy Blazer I was following earlier. And you know, now that I think, that blue Chevy Blazer is not crammed full of sleeping bags and backpacks and snacks and stuff like the one I was following her. And somewhere at a stoplight, somewhere in the middle of downtown Charlottesville, I came to realize what you already know. I was following the wrong blue Chevy Blazer, right? Listen, at that moment, it did not matter how faithfully I followed. That blue Chevy Blazer was never going to get me where I was trying to go. Envy will never get you where you're trying to go. Envy will never get you where you're trying to go. So when you find your heart swelling up with envy, how could they have that? How could they get that? How could they get that? Why don't I have that? I want that. When you find your heart swelling up with envy, remember, envy will never get you where you want to go. It's vanity and it's striving after the wind. C.S. Lewis helps us understand the connection between envy and what sometimes we will call ambition, right? Ambition. Lewis writes, ambition, we must be careful what we mean by it. If it means the desire to get ahead of other people, it is bad. If it means simply wanting to do a thing well, then it is good. It isn't wrong for an actor to want to act his part as well as it can possibly be acted. But the wish to have his name in bigger letters and in brighter lights than all of the other actors, that is a bad one. What we call ambition usually means the wish to be more successful than someone else. It is this competitive element in it that is bad. It is perfectly reasonable to want to dance well or to look nice. But when the dominant wish is to dance better or look nicer than the others... When you begin to feel that if the others danced as well as you or looked as nice as you, that would take all the fun out of it, then you are going wrong. Then you have been captured by envy, right? Envy and ambition. They're cousins. They go together. You might think of this sermon. Now, I I want this to be a good sermon. I think so far it's, it's it's a good sermon. Okay thanks, yeah, I was waiting. I was really hoping. Man, I was hoping, right? All right? Let's try again. I think so far it's a pretty good sermon. Amen. Hey, okay, all right, now we're in it. Now now it, it's good and right and wise and totally appropriate for me to want this to be a good sermon and for you to want this to be a good sermon, though for probably different reasons. But it is wrong for me to say, oh, I want this to be the best sermon. Right now, you're in the middle of a series through Ecclesiastes. Pastor Ryan did a great job organizing this. Man, you've got some powerhouse preachers coming through. I mean, you you had Dr. Danny Aiken, He runs a seminary. That's a big deal, right? And then you had Hobson Buteau. I mean, that guy can preach, right? And then you had uh, Dr. Brian Autry. That's my boss's boss, so his was phenomenal, right? Right? Um, and, and, and I'm going to tell them that. I, I listened to it, right? And then, you had, and then you, had, you had, I mean, you've had some good sermons. You've had some, some really good sermons so far. But hello, have we met? My name's Jeff. You ready for the best sermon? Right? In 25 years, when you look back on that instrumental season of your life, you know, that, that moment there in 2023 when y'all studied Ecclesiastes and you think, oh, that was a good series oh, that was a great series. Oh there, were some good ser- oh, there were some great sermons in that. But do you remember the one? Do you remember the one? His name was Jeff, right? <laughs> right? right? You see the difference between, between a, a healthy pursuit of ambition and an unhealthy way of envy. Envy will never get you where you want to go. It'll never get you where you want to go. Now, let's, let's ask a question. If envy is the root of all toil and all skill, as Solomon says it is, does that mean we should just avoid hard work altogether? Does that mean when teenage Jeff went to his dad and said, man, I don't need a job, I don't need a college degree, I just want to live on the beach and I don't want to bother anybody and not be bothered. Was I on to something? No is the answer, by the way. Right, right? So Solomon is not telling us that, well, maybe we should just quit while it's easy, or at least before it gets harder. I mean, maybe I should have never gone to college. Maybe I should have never gone after my master's degree. Maybe I should have never pursued and finished my doctorate. Brian, where are you? That, that is not the way. That is not, right? No, finish, right? right? He is not calling us to avoid hard work. He's calling us to examine our hearts in the midst of hard work. Hard work is good. It's worship Work existed before sin came into the world. We're meant to work hard, and we are meant to examine our hearts in the midst of it. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Solomon makes a direct connection between envy and the fool. He says, it's not just that you're envious. It's not just that you're looking at your neighbor and saying, ooh, that looks nice. I'd like that. It's not merely that you're envious. No, Solomon says, you are the fool. You are the fool. I'm amazed how, if we read the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes, how often we are warned of the fool. I'm saddened and ashamed, really, at some of my years when... When I was the fool, I I played the fool to a T. And I didn't just waste time, but like we saw earlier, I planted bad seeds. Right? That's what the fool does. Plants bad seeds in his or her heart. Seeds that have to be uprooted by faith and repentance. So Solomon says, the fool folds his hands. In contrast to hard work, the, the fool hardly works. They posture themselves to to barely work at all. In both Proverbs 6 and in Proverbs 24, Solomon uses this phrase, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. We are warned against folding our hands, avoiding hard work. So friends, let, let me just ask you, what do you do to avoid hard work? Do you fold your hands, take a little nap? Maybe you don't fold them. Maybe you fill them, right? Maybe you're like me and you have a little digital device we call a cell phone that helps you waste all the time you need to waste, right? Helps you avoid all the work you want to avoid. Solomon says the fool folds his hand. Fold, and he goes on. He says not only that, but the fool eats his own flesh. Well, that's nice. Thanks Solomon great 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 word picture there right what's he saying he's saying that folly envy is like a self-consuming disease it is a self-consuming disease we turn inward we look outward but we turn inward and it's a self-consuming disease proverbs 14:23 explains envy makes the bones rot again envy will cause you to work hard or to hardly work and we have all seen the ugly fruit of envy in our own lives we've all seen the jealousy of envy in our own hearts right where we looked at our neighbor or our friend or sometimes sometimes it's somebody else in the sanctuary and we say how come they they get that and I get this how come they can afford that and I can't how come they're thriving and I'm struggling just to get by and we begin to get unsettled in our envy. And we begin to grumble in our hearts. And we begin to murmur. And that, In our murmuring dissatisfaction, in our murmuring dissatisfaction, we, we, don't just, we don't just complain. We sin against our God. We claim injustice from the hand of God. That's what envy does. It claims injustice from the hand of God. Now, friends, this is, this is hard. Uh, Tim Keller was a pastor in uh, New York City. He was in Hopewell, Virginia before that for, for years. Phenomenal scholar. He passed away this weekend, actually. Uh, but w- while he was a pastor at Hopewell, he recalled a time when a teenage girl came into his office, and she said, uh, Pastor Tim, I'm, I'm really discouraged, and I'm going, growing depressed. Well, Pastor Tim tried to counsel her, give her encouragement help her out, help her understand the gospel. Eventually, she said, okay, listen, Pastor Tim, I get it. I know all of that. I know Jesus loved me. I, I know he loves me. I know he died for me. I know that he paid for my sins. I know that he's gonna take me to heaven when I die. But here, here's what she said. What good is all of that when no boy in school will talk to you? What good is all of that when no boy in school will talk to you? We can all, every one of us, relate to that teenage girl. Yes, I know Jesus loves me. I know he died for me. I know he's going to take But what good is all of that when my house is a mess? What good is all of that when I can't afford to provide that vacation? What good is all of that when we have to work really hard to uproot the seed of envy with the love of God? We have to preach the gospel to ourselves until the love of God is as real, even more real than the object of our desire and the object of our envy. Look at verse six. Solomon says, better is a handful of quietness than two handsful full of toil and a striving after the wind. Better, that's an important word in chapter 4. He says, here's one way, but here's a better way. And he doesn't mean better as in a dollar is better than a nickel. He means better as in life is better than death. Better is a handful of quietness. Derek Kidner, the uh, scholar, explains that that little phrase, a handful of quietness, exposes modest demands and inward peace. Modest demands. That is, you don't have to fight for more. You don't have to fight for two handfuls. You you don't have to be unsettled by envy. You can be content. Trusting the providential hand of your God, you can be content. Modest demands and inward peace. In his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs writes, "'A great man will permit common people "'to stand outside his doors, "'but he will not let them come in "'and make a noise in his closet or bedroom "'when he deliberately retires from all worldly business.'" So a well-tempered spirit may inquire after things outside in the world and suffer some ordinary cares and fears to break into the suburbs of the soul so as to touch lightly upon the thoughts, yet it will not on any account allow an intrusion into the private room which should be wholly reserved for Jesus Christ as his inward temple. That is inward, inward contentment. That is inward peace. So let me, let me just ask, are you content? Are you content? You you who are senior saints, and there are some among us, you're in the fourth quarter of life, and you know this, right? Are you content? As you look back on your life, and maybe you're tempted to ask the what if questions. What if I had done that? What if I had done this? What what if I had done that? Are Are you content? Trusting the providential hand of your father. And you who are young, looking forward to all that life might bring you. Are you content, trusting the providential hand of your Father in heaven? Forsake forsake the wind of envy and pursue the wisdom of contentment. Okay, that's number one. Numbers two and three are shorter. <laughs> Numbers two and three are shorter. Let's look at number two. Number two, forsake the wind of isolation And pursue the wisdom of community. Forsake the wind of isolation and pursue the wisdom of community. Look at verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So, Solomon sees one who he describes as one who has no other. He has no son. That is, he has no family over whom he can look with pride. No, no wife, no son, no daughter, over fa- no family over whom he is responsible. And no brother. That is, no family to whom he can turn in his day of sorrow. No family he can look to when he's in a hard moment. We are warned throughout the Bible... Of the dangers of isolation. Genesis chapters one and two, the creation account. God created Adam, and you might remember, he said, It is not good that he should be alone. And he warns him against isolation. We get to the book of Exodus, and we see Moses take on a position of authority. Moses is trying all of Israel's cases, and he's saying, Bring them to me, and I'll solve them for you. Moses' father in law, Jethro, comes to him one day and says, What you are doing is not good trying to handle all of this by yourself. You cannot bear the burden alone and he warns him against isolation. We get to the book of Leviticus and God's people are given the ceremony and the ceremonial and the purification laws. And they're told that when somebody sins, they are not allowed to remain in the camp with the rest of God's people. They must be taken outside the camp. And then God makes the damning declaration, he must live alone. The sinner must live alone. We are perhaps shown the the peak or the pinnacle of isolation. When we see Jesus Christ on the cross, there he is. Dying for my sins, dying for your sins. And do you remember what he said? Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you, what is it, forsaken me? And for the first time and the only time, the father was silent towards the son. There was no declaration, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. There was no affirmation of the son's work or character. There was nothing but silence from the father. And Jesus, on that cross, was all alone. The answer, by the way, had God spoken, is he would have said, my son, Jesus, I am forsaking you so that I can accept Jeff. I'm forsaking you so that I can accept Joe." I'm forsaking you so that I can accept my, right, Jesus died in our place. And he warns us of the dangers of isolation. And so here in verses seven and eight, we have a man who has been isolated. We have a man who has been isolated, no, who has no other. He has no other. Derek Kidner explains that this compulsive moneymaker maker. Is someone who has been virtually dehumanized. We're a little bit outside of the season, but perhaps you can remember that character in the Christmas Carol, Scrooge. Listen to this description. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheeks, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rhyme was on his head and on his eyebrows and his wire. Each he carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. Maybe you can see some Scrooge like tendencies in your own heart. Some Scrooge like tendencies in your own heart. Here we have a man who is all alone except for his stuff. He's all alone except for his stuff. Now, in contrast to this lonely man, Solomon gives us a better way. Look at verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, many of you have heard this passage. Some of you perhaps had it read at your wedding. Solomon says, you've seen the lonely man, you've seen the wind of isolation, now pursue the wisdom of community. Pursue the wisdom of community. He lists the benefits of community. If one falls, we can lift another up. But uh, if, if two lie together, they keep warm. If somebody comes against you, there two can, can protect themselves. There is a prayer that I'll often use when I perform a wedding ceremony in which I reference this passage. And I pray uh, that, that God, now our joys are doubled since the joy of one is the joy of the other. And our burdens are halved, since when we, when we are together, we divide the load, we share them, we divide the load. But Solomon is not calling us to marriage. This is not limited to marriage. This is a call to community. You need other people, and other people need you. Right. Ray Ortland writes: Scripture is clear. Christians have to choose between isolation, which is easy, and belonging. Which is costly and far more satisfying. Now, I appreciate the fact that Solomon called uh, community toil. He said, We have good reward for our toil because it takes work. It takes work. Relationships are a mess worth making. You have to extend the hand, you have to send the text, you have to make the call, knowing that they might not return in kind. Right? You have to pursue them knowing that they might not pursue you. Let me, let me go ahead and let you in on a little, little secret. Not everybody in the world is going to like you. okay? And that's okay. That's okay. right? It's still, it's still a call to pursue community. God has somebody in this church that he intends to use to minister to you. And, and he has somebody in this church that he intends you to minister to. God has called us to community. He warns us of the dangers of isolation, calls us to the wisdom of community, and we must work at it. We must work at it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his powerful book, Life Together, said, let him who cannot be alone be, be careful with community, and let him who is not in community be careful with being alone. We have to work at the wisdom of community. So we forsake the wind of isolation and we pursue the wisdom of community. It might be that you are getting ready to enter into a season in which you need the church to rally around you. Maybe you're there right now. And praise God that, that Nansman River is the type of church that will rally around you and where you can rally around others. So we forsake the wind of isolation. We pursue the wisdom of community. Thirdly and finally, we forsake the wind of pride and we pursue the wisdom of humility. We forsake the wind of pride and we pursue the wisdom of humility. Look at verses 13 through 16. Better, there's that key word again, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So Solomon paints a sort of parable. It's a story story. It's a story, it's a parable. And we know that there are at least two two characters in the parable. There's this young and poor, uh, 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 young and poor and wise wise youth, and this old and foolish king who who no longer knew how to take advice. Now, the characters in this story are not specifically identified. Solomon doesn't say, I'm talking about this guy, or I'm talking about this uh, person. Like in Paul's letter, you remember when he says, I entreat Judea and Syntyche to agree in the Lord? Right? My goodness, you want to be remembered for something? Your names are written in, in Scripture as you couldn't get along. Right? Solomon doesn't give us names here, which means we're, well, we're left to speculate. So, some people believe that, well, maybe he was talking about Joseph. You remember Joseph in the Old Testament? He went from prison to a place of, in position of authority. Some people think maybe he was talking about, Solomon was writing about his own father, David who unfortunately could be described as a king who knew, no longer knew how to take advice. It's a sobering thought. Dads, how will our sons remember us? And so he gives us this, this parable. But I don't think he intends for us to say, oh, well, maybe it's Joseph. Or, oh, maybe it's David. I think Solomon intends for us to say, oh, it's, it's me. I, I am the old and foolish king. I've grown comfortable in my uh, authority. I've grown uh, prideful in my position. And if we're not careful, we can forget how to take advice, right? One of the most important characteristics we've got to develop is teachability. Teachability. You have to be willing to be teachable, right? Again, you don't know it all yet. Maybe, maybe, maybe again, that's a light bulb moment for some of us, right? You don't know it all yet. And so remain teachable remain teachable he ends with this sad picture in verse 16 there was no end of all the people all of whom he led so this was not just a king this was a king's king right no end to all of the people he led but yet those who come later will not rejoice in him we can imagine a funeral where nobody shows up. A funeral where nobody shows up. This king had a procession of subjects, a procession of subjects, but an absence of followers. He was a king with a crown, but with no happy citizens in his kingdom. It's almost as though he were just playing dress up. It's almost like this king was fooling himself to thinking he was a king years ago Lauren and I had gone to sleep when all of a sudden Lauren was woken up by a noise in the guest bedroom so uh, being a, a, a good a good uh, wife she slapped my side of the bed to wake me up but she found out I wasn't there right and so she called out Jeff Jeff, what are you doing? She could hear me doing something in the guest bedroom. She didn't know what I was doing. I was just making all kinds of noise. I was messing with the window shades. Now, I need to let you in on a little secret. I was dead asleep. All right? Now, I don't sleepwalk often, but this day, oh, man, did I ever. Right? And so I'm in the other room, and I'm messing with the blinds. And she calls out, Jeff, what are you doing? And I'm just, 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 the, the window blinds. And she calls back. just just a little bit more awake and no less confused. Jeff, what are you doing messing with the window blinds? To which I, though I was very much asleep and yet very much confident as well, called back, woman, I'm on the safety team. (laughs) Now, I don't know what the safety team is or why anybody would want me to be on it. But in my sleep-deprived state, I was a certified card-carrying member of the safety team, and I was checking those window blinds for any danger that might lurk therein. And don't you worry, you sleep well, because the safety team's here. I was fooling myself in my sleep-deprived moment. And this king in Ecclesiastes 4 was fooling himself thinking that a crown made him a king. He had grown prideful in his position. And Solomon calls us to forsake the wind of pride and pursue the wisdom of humility. Pursue the wisdom of humility. Friends, we have a true and better king in Jesus We will not attend his funeral, but we will be there for his coronation. We will be there when our king and our God says, amen, and brings all of history to an end. You do realize that evil has an expiration date. God will one day say, amen. He'll say, amen, and he's going to bring you, and he's going to bring me, he's going to bring all of us home. All of all of god's people will be gathered the Bible has a word for this it's glorification theologian John Murray explains it's when we are delivered we are redeemed not only from sin but from all its consequences all of its consequences one day our true king will deliver us from sin and all its Consequences. At Jesus' birth, the angels made the declaration I bring you good news of great joy for all people. Good news, great joy, all people. We can contrast that to this sad king in Ecclesiastes 4 who had no people and no joy. Those who come later will not rejoice in him. Friends, Jesus is glorious. He is infinitely glorious. So let's forsake, let's forsake the wind of pride thinking that we are glorious. And let's pursue the wisdom of humility, knowing that he is glorious. We, we haven't done this though, have we? We've turned inward. We've thought way too highly of ourselves. We take ourselves way too seriously. We grow prideful and arrogant And all the while, Jesus invites us back into humility. The Apostle Paul meditates on the humility of Jesus in Philippians 2. And this is where we're going to end. He says, do nothing from envy or ambition or selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see what Paul did? Paul took Jesus from the heights of, he he was equal with God, to the lowliness of death on a cross. He took Jesus lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. This is the humiliation, the humility of Christ. But understand this that he only took Jesus low so that he could take him back up. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and below the earth and some other places that I can't remember right now, right? And he says, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is glorious You don't have to be You're not that big a deal But Jesus is In fact he's a bigger deal Than we could ever imagine Every tongue will confess That Jesus Christ is Lord So let me just ask you Is that your confession this morning? Let that be the banner That waves over all Of your relationships Let me pray for us Father, thank you for the gospel. The good news that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and on the third day rose again in accordance with the scriptures. We believe this to be good news that brings great joy to all people. God, I pray that this morning the gospel would bring good news of great joy to us. That perhaps some of us who have grown envious would be satisfied with the glory of Christ. That that, that some of us who have grown isolated would pursue the wisdom of, of community and that some of us who have grown prideful would be humble knowing that Jesus is glorious and we don't have to be. So God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. If there's anybody in this room, oh God, who does not know Jesus as their Savior, who cannot say with Philippians 2, Jesus Christ is Lord, would you do whatever it takes to bring them to a place where they see that Jesus is a bigger Savior than they are a sinner all day long? God, we trust you in things great and small, and we pray these things in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen.